This is Brass Tactics, policy and strategy for the people, not the politics. Let's get down to Brass Tactics, the layman's guide to understanding war, conflict, and foreign policy in the modern world. That's pretty money right there, courtesy of my brother. Anyway, I'm your host, Joe McGiffin, and as usual with me is Peter Mitchell. Pete, say hi. Hi, everybody. And we are here to talk to you about basically the stuff that was in that really cool tagline that I don't have memorized. Oh, so far, we have exactly one published episode at the time we are recording this. That was a lot of history to cover in one session, and it mostly talked about philosophy and nerdy stuff. Thought it'd be really cool if we talked a little bit more history stuff. So, I'm going to uh, probably let Pete off the leash a little bit harder here as as our resident historian, history guru, and basically generally well-rounded, knowing all of it. History of warfare, in a nutshell. So, Joe, why don't we still fight each other with rocks? I mean, technically, isn't a lead bullet still just a rock? No, it's a lead bullet. What is a bullet? What is a lead? If nothing other than a very shiny rock. A cast projectile. So it's an artificial rock. Okay, you're being very reductionistic already. Okay, so I'll humor you. That's not, I'm Why not being that reductivistic. If if my main assertion is going to be over here, the unique thing about the changing characteristics of warfare over time is that they have essentially never actually substantively changed. That's good. Whereas the tools change, everything else does not. So the tools may have changed. Why don't we still throw rocks at each other? Why do we then accelerate these rocks? out of barrels at each other very, very quickly. Well, at a fundamental level, that really just comes down to the fact that we figured out a faster way of throwing the rocks, Peter. We found better ways of storing and using energy to deliver rocks at high speed from long range. So if you want to understand warfare, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, all you have to do is go back to your high school physics class. Essentially that. First is what? The club? The first weapon that we've ever used? Are you waiting for me to figure out what the second weapon was? Because I was just sort of waiting for you to run away gun this so that you can get to the end of your idea and I can tell you why it's wrong. So... The first weapons of war are improvised tools. Clubs, axes, spears, bows. Those are hunting tools of agriculture or other things like that. Like you, you can use a club as a hammer or as a, uh, you know, as a flail to beat colonels out of chat. Beating a colonel sounds like something that would be a punishable military offense. Beating the colonels out of wheat into chaff. That's that stuff you use to deter a rocket, right? Or missile? Not deter a rocket. It, it creates a fake radar signature. Usually they're very shiny and bits of aluminum mixed with stuff. That's chaff. But yes, you are correct. Good air defense term. Oh, very small rocks. Very. And, okay, you're getting me off topic. You don't have a deliberately produced weapon until 
the sword. The first form-built weapon for the express purpose of killing another human being is a sword. Because you can't hunt with a sword. It is only used for killing other people. Every other weapon that we have can also be used for hunting or for agricultural purposes. So how do you improve on that? You can't make weapons efficiently from flint and rock. So you develop metal tools, which is a whole other conversation, as you were saying before the recording. Who the heck was the first dude to uh, smelted copper and turned it into a tool? And what was he thinking when he did so? You just want to keep running with this. So we progressed. No, well, this, we need a better entry. Normally, we start with a question. We can get to the whole rock beats Rochambeau. I think it's pretty funny. What's pretty funny? Rock beats paper. Well, paper wasn't invented yet, and neither was scissors. Paper beats rock. <laughs> Somebody lied to you. One of your brothers must have had a whole bunch of your lunch money growing up because paper does not lose to rock. One cool idea to cover for a podcast, which sort of still brings into this whole this whole fixation you have with rocks and kinetic energy, even though you got a what what did you get in what did you get in college on your physics? Oh, C minus. Yeah. So despite your late in life discovery and passion for potential and kinetic energy, Pete. You should really laugh out loud. It helps add some character to the show. Other, Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Otherwise, people genuinely think I'm like bullying you again instead of seeing <laughs> that you're enjoying the humor. I think I prefer that, though. It adds a masochistic streak to the podcast that I think people will really like. Anyway, so my wife thought, she was like, well, why don't you, why don't you do a podcast on like why people... She actually went kind of dark with it. She didn't ask, like, why people have won wars in the past. She actually asked why people lose them. And she was like, why did the Roman Empire collapse? And despite that meme rage that was going around the internet, I don't really think that much about the Roman Empire, except upon request. And so, yeah, so why? And this is getting back to, to, your, to your rock thing that you're very much on about right now. Why do people... Because somebody built a better mousetrap. Somebody somebody cheated. Somebody somebody upset the paradigm. Something very popular. Could call it dis they innovated in a disruptive manner or the disruptive innovations. That's a that's probably the cocktail convo that I'm going to focus on for this one. In a nutshell, that's people lose wars in history because they somebody leveraged a new advantage and changed changed the paradigm, changed the rules about the way we view military affairs. Well, not always though, because sometimes one side just gives up. That's true, but I don't think we really most of us don't really remember that. You know what I mean? Like the war happened, but it wasn't that memorable. Like Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. Suppose I I sort of frame those. I don't consider those victories. I don't really consider some of those independent wars. But that's mostly just because Vietnam was very much framed in the Cold War. And so Vietnam was, in this sort of analogy or this way of looking at it, Vietnam was an intense, gruesome, grisly, multi-year battle that essentially the battle ended in a draw, which ends up being a regional, with regional implications, that ends up being a defeat, right? Because Vietnam 
Vietnam goes goes to the dark side there, goes to the comic side. But yeah, I guess those ones are also very recent memory. In my defense, I came here with notes prepared going well past. Like I was going, I got I got Troy on here. Like I was prepared to dig way back. And so in that scope, nobody remembers the wars that didn't didn't change things. I guess I can't say right because there's a valid point. But those so those contemporary. I had a history professor in college who used to say the only century more boring to study than the 21st is the 20th because there's not a whole lot there to sort of guess at, piece back together, or figure out. And so the 20, yeah, we all the 20th century wars are definitely still remembered as you pointed out. So that's very unfair of me to characterize. But before those big wars, and I, I don't think Vietnam. Now that we're seeing a sharp decline in the number of veterans from it, it's not it's not brought up very much. Afghanistan, Iraq is definitely brought up in the same vein, but these are also just not remembered for good reasons either. And so, getting back to why people lose wars, and I guess more specifically, they lose the war that mattered, the the Sunzuian War, the war that was literally the difference between their existence and non-existence and it's because somebody cheated somebody figured out hey maybe there's something out there that is better than just a rock the earliest recorded war in history is from 2700 bc and it's between the sumerians and the elamites in mesopotamia modern-day iraq it's amazing because we don't really even know who won we guess the Sumerians did because they have records of it. But I guess that would go to what you're saying is there's not much to piece together. What were they fighting over? We can assume probably agricultural space, grazing land, property rights, water access. Those kind of things are extremely important in that region. Still are. What is water? The stuff you drink. Water. Yes. Water. Yes. Water. Here's the thing. Sorry, to the point. How is it recorded, though? In cuneiform, from the Sumerians. When, like, we don't know who wrote it, or do we know how recently it was written after the bet? I'm just curious, because yeah. the Bible records some wars, too. Right. But the Bible was recorded orally and not put down until, what, the uh, five 600s BC? So I'm thinking, like, Homer, the, the Iliad. Oh, yeah. Now I have to look up when the Iliad was, because, but that's in a very similar boat. They're telling a story based off of something. The Trojan War, I believe, happened around 1300 BC. You can actually fact check me right now. See how my memory is. I don't think it's recorded down on paper or papyrus until what, 500 BC? 12th or 13th century BC. I am so good. That's when it happens. Mm -hmm. Homer does his thing around 1000, I want to say, and then. It's not copied down until centuries later. But the thing is, every single ancient Hellene, every Greek, knew the Iliad and the Odyssey by heart. They took it with their mother's milk. It wasn't particularly important that they had it written down. No, you're 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 right. It wasn't that important. Again, I don't. That was really interesting that the early records of warfare. I'm, I know we're aware of some various Egyptian scuffles as well. The reason I gravitated towards the the Iliad is because it's the first time we get anything that loosely 
because again, very there's artistic license out the wazoo. Deities come down from the sky to smite people in the middle of battle and stuff. But it's the first thing we have that actually tells people what a war actually looked like. Mm-hmm. And grounded with probably real historical people. Yeah. Um, now with with much speculation, but in a way that nobody can actually tell me I'm wrong because nobody ripped down what came before. Why aren't we still beating each other with rocks? Well, Ugga and Bugga, they had clubs. They figured out occasionally they got an, or an animal, maybe built a trap or something, but eventually they find rocks. And they start getting deadly with rocks. And then they throw rocks at each other. One bounces off, Ugga bounces one off of Bugga's head. It hits a bigger rock and it splits in half. And it gets a really sharp edge. And they're like, hey, what if we put this on our club? And then they're like, what if we get bigger rocks? So eventually you move from the club and rock throwing to the axe. And once you have the axe, you start seeing woodcraft, proto-carpentry, right? So you don't have nails or anything, but you, you have gross gross bulk carpentry, which opens up to things like a little bit more straighter spears. Yep. Straighter spears tipped with rocks. You throw the spear. Hey, that works. And then... I'm going to just let you take over from here. But I do need to point out that the next thing after the rock and figuring out how to throw the rock or the stick slash shaft that has a very sharp rock and or blade attached to it, the next biggest thing that comes along that changes the game is the wheel. How's that store energy for you, Peter? Well, we're born with animal domestication. You have the chariot, which is a cart that you can then put people with sticks and rocks on top of. Well, so add metallurgy to that, right? And Pete and I had a fascinating conversation. If somebody knows how metallurgy started in human history, please let us know. But you, you have the Hittites who start off with iron that historians think was meteoric iron. Pete's going to share that in the show notes for this. And we think that's why they had iron when everybody else had bronze. And it's like, how did you figure out how to make bronze? Did you just make a fire pit out of really pretty rocks? Or did you start with gold, maybe? Yeah, that's the absurd thing, because bronze is an alloy of copper and tin. So they had to figure out how to first melt copper and make copper tools. But they were like, oh, this is rubbish. This is too soft. What if we mix another soft metal into it as a very precise proportion to make bronze, which is far more tough and more durable? But like when who who figured out the melting thing? Am I a witch? What did I do here? I turned the rock into water. Anyway, that's just a fun bit of speculation. But yeah, so at the same time you have metallurgy, so now you've moved past just flint flint or obsidian weaponry. So but yeah, so so you have this wheel. And then the wheel is brand new. The metallurgy is sort of adapting from those stone weapons. And as Pete may or may not have pointed out, based off of the large amount of editing I'm probably going to have to do because we can never agree on anything. And this time, we actually wrote competing outlines for this episode, so this is fun. You have the first, we you have the first weapon. Well, they weren't coordinated, that's for sure. You have the first weapon ever made that wasn't made for for the purpose of life. It wasn't wasn't for plowing a field. It wasn't for skinning an animal. It was it was for unaliving the sword, which, as you pointed out earlier, is just a long knife. 
Yeah, and so like it, they took a base thing there, and it, they they adapted it like they 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 tweaked it significantly, right? But that wheel, that wheel was brand new, and so then the chariot comes for however long we can figure. People are literally riding around on the chariot, throwing spears or javelins, throwing the air the bow and arrow come at some point to your to your kinetic kinetic higher potential energies point well it's an interesting note that during the iliad the champions use chariots as a almost like a battlefield taxi they'll hop on their chariot and the chariot will take them to the front line they'll jump off the chariot fight a one-on-one against another hero and then whoever loses usually jumps in his chariot and runs this is my story peter that's where i was getting but thank you but yeah and then by the time you get to the era that Charlton Heston specialized in with Ben-Hur and whatnot, you now have blades mounted on chariot wheels, implying that they started to have a more direct kinetic use. Chariots start being employed at some point much later than the Iliad as a direct battle tactic, but the Greeks don't do it. Well, here's the thing. So by the early Iron Age, by like this 8700s, chariots are already kind of seen as obsolete because they're strictly limited in the type of terrain that they can be employed upon. You need nice, flat, open, preferably brushed. Yes, I'm aware of how chariots work. But that doesn't stop the Egyptians from using it as a proto-mounted archery unit. Only in the old and middle kingdoms by the time of the new kingdom they're not using chariots oh my anymore. god that's not doesn't that's, yeah because somebody else figures out a better way of doing it but the point is the wheel was readily adapted into into a weapon plot it was at first it was a maneuver platform and then people started tweaking with it to to capitalize upon it because they realized they were, there was much there was much more value to it than just delivering people on the battlefield as the Aeneid later points out, because the chariots are then actually used as a mobile archery unit. May I continue? I was going to say, they're superseded by the domestication of larger horses and the advent of horseback riding. Maybe. I, I only see that because, as my outline here shows, yeah, that eventually does happen. We, we get to cavalry, but before cavalry, the next innovation we see, again, totally new and just I'm very well aware of you. You are giving the history of warfare is the is the history of physics exploitation. My point is the history of warfare is a history of cheating, and so you have the chariot, right? Shush with your horse thing. After the chariot, the next thing that's seen, because again, a lot of this is coming from what they call the proto phalanx era. Before the chariot is used. The proto phalanx era, meaning. We clarify though, you're you're talking strictly ancient Greek warfare here. I'm talking the Trojan War right now. We are still at the Trojan War. I haven't been able to move past the Trojan War. The random deities and acts of literal, of figurative or possibly literal gods aside, because Homer Homer creates or tells us a very wild tale here. Time out though. Don't you want to tell the audience the story of why the Trojan War starts in the first place? No, I don't. What if they're not familiar with it? Then they can Google it, or they can watch Orlando Bloom's follow-on claimed if that was Gerard Butler in that one, too. I can't that remember. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's definitely in there as well. You can just go watch Troy, the movie, or you can read the Iliad. What happens is those this proto-phalanx 
from the best we can figure, basically, because all we have is Homer, you have these dudes that are sort of wanting, running around in like random gangs, not random gangs. They're on, they're on different sides of the battle. You have, they step forward at various times. And so there's this emphasis on courage and bravery. You step forward to try and poke the other person or throw something at the other person. And when you step out, you're exposed as well. And eventually you step back into this loose formation that's just constantly in motion as people are waiting to take their chance to run up. Like like you're playing dodgeball, right? Somebody jumps up to the front, pops off a shot, and then drops back to the back. There's an emphasis on individual courage as opposed to mass discipline. Absolutely. And then the chariot the chariot is leveraged in this proto-phalanx because now you can move up to the front faster and you can get out faster too. And while you're on there, you have a chance to throw a couple spears on your way out. But as Pete has indicated a couple times here, the chariot is, as a weapon in war, is obsoleted at some point. We know Sun Tzu used it only because he counted it in his tallies, and he talks about some cavalry formations and suggestions. But largely, you s there's not much evidence. Of th there's not much consistent evidence that chariots are used largely in this next epoch. Because after the Trojan War, looking specifically in, in the Greek area, because that's my jam, and also, again... One of the best documented, too. And Dan Carlin's Art for History backs that up as well. He's got a phenomenal series on the Persian Empire as well. But this is where most of our information on this part of the world comes from during this period. You have the actual phalanx. It's an it's a genuine formation of interlocked shields. You, you don't have, if you're having trouble picturing what the phalanx works like, don't worry, Gerard Butler's got you covered. Just go watch a random section of 300. Viewer discretion is advised because they took some artistic liberties that make it less child-friendly. Anyway, they, they interlock shields and they're holding spears over that. And in that specific battle that's in the 300 movie, Terrain plays an even more important role, but less the personal courage and more the disciplined courage to stand in this formation. There's more safety and structured numbers when you're coordinated and holistic. And this phalanx just kicks Persian butt as they keep trying to invade Greece in two different wars that happened in the early 5th century BC. Yeah, 480 BC. That's when Thermopylae is. And you see this, this formation is what takes its place, and the formation is something that the Romans are still known for. Well, the Romans actually start out fighting in a phalanx in the early Republic period. They copy the actions of the Greeks. Right, yeah. But they also adapt their formations over time with more exposure. But they introduce two other things, I think. You, well, I'm, I'm sharing credit. Alexander the Great. Yes, that Alexander the Great. The one whose dad conquered Greece and he basically takes credit for it. He was known as his dad's best cavalry officer, or, or so we are told. So he had, his dad was known for two things. One, he made a very specialized phalanx with longer spears. So you see this, you see this minute adaptations again. And so that standoff distance let them be better than the Greek mechanics. But what he also did is he, he perfected formations for cavalry as well. Just before the Macedonians invade and conquer all of Greece and you get the era of Alexander the Greek. It's different Greek city states, especially in the, Thess the Thessaly region. Yeah, Thessaly is famous for its cavalry. 
they experimented with horse breeding and came up with a horse that was big enough to run fast while carrying a lightly armored human on it. And that rapidly leads into, all right, how can we integrate this into war? And so you see the proto-phalanx that turn, then you see the chariot leveraged in the proto-phalanx. Then you see that it's proto-phalanx replaced by formations over time. And then those formations, somebody cheated and ran them over with cavalry from the side where they were exposed. And so now you have the cavalry formation reigning supreme. So you see a combination of the dismounted infantry formations and the cavalry formation. And then the Romans perfect two different things, both involving copious amounts of money that aren't necessarily battlefield, battlefield tactics per se. The first one is siegecraft. You don't see much siegecraft. You don't see many siege weapons before the Roman Empire. I counter that pretty strongly. The allied uh, Babylonians and Persians knocked down the walls of Nineveh by redirecting a river. And then out into the great himself, when he sees his tire, builds a massive siege ramp out to it that's locked it to the land permanently. So you see a siege ramp, which is artificial terrain, and then you see a river, which is also artificial terrain. I'm not disagreeing with engineering, and I'm not saying that the Romans invented siege craft or siege weapons, because I'm specifically talking about rock-throwing ones or spear-throwing ones, the Scorpio and the Ballista. Um, because, yes, battering ram, large, just you get a large enough hammer. Um, these things did happen. More affluent city-states, we have evidence that they had siege weaponry mounted on walls. So it's not that it didn't exist, but that the Romans, again, perfected through the other thing that took lots of money, which is the Romans have the first military-industrial complex. You're completely jumping over the Manipular Legion, the whole thing that lets the Romans defeat the Greeks at the Battle of Sinocephali. Yeah, I didn't skip anything. That's just a smaller formation that made the formation slightly more maneuverable. That doesn't change the epoch of the wars there. What does what the Romans do do that changes the epoch is that they don't have just the one legion, and they don't have particularly unique legions either. They don't have the highest technology. They weren't smarter than anybody else. They didn't invent new weaponries while they were there, but they equipped everybody with the state of the art. They were able to mass produce the legate armor. They were able to mass produce officer armors. They were able to mass produce the gladius. They were able to mass produce and uniformly equip legions. And so it wasn't just this one leader had really good stuff or the weight of this formation was unbreakable. It was the combination of both. And you, and this also, this also allows them to leverage more siege weapons, which were prohibitively expensive. That's why the siege weapons that we all can list derive in some manner. It's a trebuchet, although arguably France is just lazy Latin, so sort of. No, but the trebuchet was a medieval invention. Yeah, but I was just saying, like most of the other ones you're going to name, you're going to you're going to use a Roman name for it, a Latin. Yeah, 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 that's fair. And so that brings us to to this epoch in history that that covers land warfare before gunpowder. I, I did pay attention particularly to doctrine and also like the the apex technologies as it were. But I I'd argue that's part of what I'm calling this first military industrial complex. Because now you you have this cast of people particularly specifically uniquely geared 
for the conduct and execution of this stuff. But instead of corporations working the creation and the contracting of defense contracts, it's individual patricians and senators. I mean, same basic principle, though. It is. Because you could make an absolute ton of money in the Roman Empire by conquering another province. Do you know what they made their ballista ropes out of? Would you like to know what material they found that stored more potential energy than any other material they had ready access to? Animal entrails? No. Hemp? Nope. Go ahead, you got me. Human hair. That's a lot of hair. That's what I said, too. This was part of my capstone project for college. It sounds slightly suspect. What's your sources on that? We had real ones. But you made a ballista with human hair. No, no. Ours was vastly inferior, and part of the reason why is we did not have ready access to enough human hair to breed our own rope. We, we used polyester ones because hemp doesn't stretch, and you, you need... You need the ability to stretch in order to store that energy. Okay, so why would you use like gut, like ox gut or cat gut? Probably because that is too much stretch. Hmm. Regardless, combat and warfare then stays relatively the same all the way up through the high medieval period. Except we're using sharp rocks to hit each other with or thrown at great distance from siege weapons. Not on the oceans, not in the seas. Well, it's still ram and board. No. It became ram and board because ships are expensive. So I interrupt here to one, be snarky, and two, because the sea warfare aspect I think often gets overlooked. But honestly, you can take two looks at innovate. Well, three looks because you have Pete's unique. This is all about physics. But the other two classic looks, classical ways of viewing innovation come from the Air Force nerds, the Air Power nerds, rather and the Navy wonk. So you had this guy that we may or may not have mentioned in the first episode named Alfred Thayer Mahat. He writes the first definitive book on naval theory in the late, mid, mid-1800s, mid I think. Mid to late. I think he published in 1895. So he's late steamship era. And then you have Billy Mitchell and Julio Duhat, which are both early 20th century, and again, of no relation to Peter Mitchell, who is of no relation to the eponymous Maverick. Much to my absolute shame and chagrin. Alfred Thayer Mahan looks at naval history and is like, hey, innovation and these changes in paradigms of naval warfare stay relatively static for decades, for centuries. And then they are just completely upturned overnight. Whereas the Air Force guys take this different approach. Warfare is always changing. You either have the mess you either have the best weapon, you have the next best weapon, or you lose. And I don't know where Pete's theory of fit, a theory of warfare according to physics fits into this, but I kind of reconcile the two. Inside of Mahan's overall framework, you have these constant mini adaptations. Like we talked about metallurgy, right? You went from rock to rock blade to metallurgy to better metal blades enabled by the new material. And then you went from the wheel to the chariot. Then you ditched the chariot for the better horse. And you see the same thing at sea. So first you have a raft. And then you have a very large canoe analog. Yes, yes. And then you have 
the trireme. And the trireme is the first one that is... No, because a, a trireme is a highly sophisticated galley, which is what you're thinking of. A single decker, primarily developed by Ruo. The trireme is the pinnacle of... Well, the quinquireme is the pinnacle of galleys. The galley being largely... I'm going to throw something at you. Just go look the other way. And so you have the galley, according to Mahan. And the galley, what makes the galley the galley is that it's man-powered. It has to be rowed. And it is itself the weapon. It can have a sail, but the sail is not the primary means of propulsion. And it's a square sail. I don't think they care about Webster's Dictionary for, for ship type, dude. So the point is they had the trireme, you row it really fast and you ram it into somebody. Or they start developing tactics. Uh, you can you can row your boats around their boat and then you can come back from behind at them. Ultimately, you're trying to get your plow, your prow, excuse me, into a softer side and you're not, you're trying to avoid a head-on collision. Um, but you're not boarding them because if you're, if you're stuck inside their ship, your ship's going down just as fast as they're doing. So the next thing that happens is they do try to board galley. The Romans are known for this, I think it's called a corvus, and it's just a catwalk with a spike on the end, and so instead of ramming the prow into an enemy vessel, they come up alongside it or against it. They literally drop the, essentially a drawbridge with a giant stake on it onto theirs, and then they board it. So that is very economical because you stand to just at the low, low cost of however many lives you lose fighting for it, you win an extra ship. But this is still the galley. The galley doesn't get replaced until sail. And sail requires like substantial textile industry because these things are huge. And the sail is far more efficient than the galley. And that's... At the same time, you have gunpowder, which we're going to have to jump back to land warfare in a second. Right after the sail, you start having cannons. And then that becomes warfare until the steam engine and iron flanked ships. I'm going to throw it back to Pete. Something I do want to point out for all of you lovely people out there, though, is that Pete and I have now reached the point at which we can be wrong. Because now we are at the part where people with more degrees than brains constantly argue about each other's about how military theory develops and what is warfare and blah, 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 blah. And this feeds into one of my pet peeves, which is the buzzword culture. I don't like buzzwords, Pete. Somebody's always coming on. If, if a military person makes it up, it's to get a better rating from their boss. Or they're using it to intimidate people from from getting involved in military affairs, from sharing their opinions, from being a part of the necessary innovation that national security requires. If an academic's doing it, it's just to sell themselves, become famous, pat themselves on the You're never going to sell books with that attitude, my friend. Well, you know, it's probably a good thing that podcasts are free and it only cost eighteen ninety nine to register for my website. So yeah, I just don't like the buzzwords, but the buzzword that is triggering this is revolutions in military affairs. Most most literature on this theory, the academic theory of revolutions in military affairs, or RMA theory, starts somewhere around 
gunpowder. People like to speculate about 15th and 16th century revolutions, about longos and stuff. But your people start drawing distinctions is when guns start becoming the primary weaponry. And what Pete and I have talked about, we've talked about, I would argue, evolutions. There's nothing new, nothing radical. It's not, oh, somebody revolutionized warfare. It's more like, hey, you cheated. Right? You, you, used something I had really access to in a way that I wasn't prepared for and I don't appreciate that. But gunpowder, when it comes along, it changes quite literally everything. Because not only is it a technological change, but there's a financial change, there's an administrative change, there's an architectural change as defensive fortifications have to evolve, become more resistant to cannonballs. It's the, organizational the tactical changes. It's still just the catapult, but better. I would say no. Because now everybody gets a catapult and they can hold it in their hands instead of having to build it on site. But then how do they use it? They use it exactly how they were using crossbows before. Your favorite, everybody line up in a square while we die formation you like to talk about, right? Somebody with a spear out front protects the crossbow. In my mistake, somebody with a spear out front protects the dude with the gun. Yeah, the tertial. And they take turns stepping out in front of the crossbow, or excuse me, stepping out in front of the pike and shooting their gun. I mean, crossbow. I'm so confused. Oh, why am I confused? Because the gunpowder didn't actually change anything, except now it's a lot easier to shoot through armor. Which, by the way, they're still wearing. Yes, because it can stop a bullet at range. More importantly is it changes the fact you can't hide behind your castle until you're starved out. Now we can walk up and knock them down in a matter of days. A better castle. Will you end up doing that? You adapt and retaliate and innovate. Oh, somebody threw a rock really hard using fire as opposed to throwing a rock really hard using wood. And they cheated. How much training does it take to throw a rock to hit somebody vis-a-vis loading and firing a matchlock musket in a disciplined manner? So what I'm hearing is the cycle starts all over again. You start off with these tercios, this protecting an individual who steps up from cover and then steps back into cover, and then you evolve that into let's line up all of the muskets in a formation to achieve a more mass effect. That would be the Swedish and Dutch military reforms of the 1600s, where they start realizing that the musket, instead of the pike, is the prime weapon of the battlefield, and every soldier should have one if possible. That also demands changes in the state, centralization of government, uh, the loss of power of the minor nobility, and the increase in power of of the king or the parliament in the case of England. But it changes quite literally everything about European society and then later politics. Because when you have centralized states with professional, standing, large, powerful, trained militaries, they can come at you whenever they want to, which means you also need to have one of those. So the state was literally forged in the fire of cannon fire. War made the state, and the state made war. Charles Tilly. I still don't acknowledge it as a revolution because all of these things seem 
nothing a revolution implies a non sequitur it implies that it was a large break from what came before and none of this is a large break what came before people are constantly seeking new advantages and literally you discover something it doesn't take very long at all till somebody else comes along and is like how can I weaponize this in World War II we literally attached napalm bombs to bats dropped them out of an airplane set a timer so that the bats could roost in Tokyo in various places and then incinerated them. Yeah, it's something Sun Tzu probably would have found very admirable. But of course, that was a, that was a, you know, we found that just packing bombs full of napalm and then dropping them were more effective and efficient. Which is essentially the same idea. We're not using animals. We're using mechanical birds. I'm just saying, John McGiffin's rule number one of military theory is... If it can be weaponized, you can bet somebody will try to. And that's how gunpowder goes from being a spectacle and really used as a signaling agent as well in, in China. Mm -hmm. And then somebody figures out how to weaponize it because they needed, they needed a way to win because they weren't winning. Then the airplane is the same way. Excuse me, aerostatic platforms came first. Somebody put a balloon in the air to figure out where the bad guys were going and where they were located. And then the Austrians came along and were like, hey, you know what else we could do? Fill a rock with gunpowder. Fuse on it. Drop it out of this balloon. And if your enemy has that and you don't, you're at a disadvantage. Better catch up. So that brings us to gunpowder. And the unique thing about gunpowder is it coincides with naval as well. So... All aspects of warfare change at the same time because of gunpowder. Yep. Right. At the same time, I mean, in a span of however many years it takes to adapt. And the aim of naval warfare goes from being to, to be honest, in the high Middle Ages, the reason why the cog, other medieval trade ships had such high forecastles and sterns was because you could, the idea was you would fire arrows down onto the deck of your other ship. They're like little floating castles. When gunpowder comes around, now the intent becomes instead of to ram and board or to shoot arrows, you're now going to try to hit a broadside or even better come along the beam of the other ships. You're firing kind of perpendicular to them and rake them with fire. And then you have the 19th century, which is fairly well addressed and frankly somewhat boring. Artillery becomes a big deal. Balloons are sort of played with. Airplanes come in right at the end. Airplanes introduce something brand new, as well as the internal combustion engine. These both introduce something brand, brand new. Again, we talked, German Blitzkrieg featured a lot in the episode that came right before this one or after. But that again, the, the Germans were looking at a way of cheating and breaking the status quo in a way to that worked to their advantage. And the fact that mechanization, all of these automobiles and things were rolling out in mass production at the same time was just added into that and just made it all the better. Which brings us to the present day. And one of the remarkable things about the 20th and the 21st centuries, besides being boring like what Joe said, the 18th and 19th centuries witnessed the harnessing first of coal as a transportable, stable energy source, and the cracking open of that coal in first the steam engine, then later the discovery and the implication of petroleum, which is even more efficient than coal than storing power and energy in the internal combustion engine. 
finally, in the middle of the 20th century, we unlock the power of the atom, the most efficient yet we found way of exploiting energy from a physical source. Which is, in my opinion, kind of the final revolution, which also changes war. Because you can't fight the way Napoleon did anymore because you have nukes. Math suddenly shrink in value as opposed to just sheer firepower. Okay, but what about the drone equipped with the kitchen knife set that we got El Zawahiri with last year? Well, that would be one that people would say we're living through a revolution of our own right now. But, I mean, that had much less energy associated with it. And it only killed what? It only killed 100% of the people that were supposed to be killed by it. It was just him. He was in his family's company. We'll link to the article just for everybody's awareness. Very precise. Whereas in the history of warfare, the world, and everything you need to know, according to Joe, this is all a progression of cheating. And what is the ultimate form of cheating? Remoteness, distance, gunpowder was the best enabler of that. First, you're shooting somebody 30 yards away. Now you're shooting at somebody today, shooting miles away. The atom bomb? They figured out bombers can drop bombs. We don't even have to be involved in war. We can send a bunch of explosives, drop them out of an airplane, and leave. Like, we're just avoiding conflict. What came before the bomb? What destroyed the literal land in Europe during World War One? Artillery. We just kept figuring out a way to throw something bigger, more lethal, from farther and farther away. And more centralized. You can have somebody in a situation room calling a direct drone strike on a single target instead of a commander on the ground making that decision. So at this point, we are coming to a wrap, but we gave it a valiant effort. We probably shouldn't try to gloss over the 20th century in one go anyways. Something for later. It might only be 100 years, but... A lot happens. We'll have to have a part two on the technology because this is also the end of the 19th, but more specifically the 20th century, is is the era that leaves us with actual information. We can see what people were thinking when they made what decisions. We can see published forms of doctrine. We can see other things. And we can see all the buzzwords. So part two will be technology and buzzword culture, I guess. I like that idea. Because the 20th century is the century of buzzwords. So we've made it to the steamship so far. And for those of you out there, you'll have to hold that thought. So we argued warfare up to the steamship. What do you want to talk about? We made it to the steamship. Let's let's say we made it to what's the first shooty bang? Shooting bang? Shooty shooty bang bang conflict. The shooty shooty bang bang conflict. The only more specific. The first where both sides were armed with gunpowder weapons. Cool French and Indian War, so let's just say we made it up to... Do you mean the Seven Years' War? You're just baiting me right now. You're trying to make me mention Prussia. What did I say? You said the French and Indian War, which, yes, is fairly boring in the American theater, but it's a worldwide conflict. Eh. The Seven Years' War is very interesting. It were that. Why not do the War of the Spanish Succession? Early 1700s. Also, there's Queen Anne's War, if you want to be really American. Because nothing cool happens. How about the Thirty Years' War? Tons of cool stuff happens in the Thirty Years' War. And both, they use pikes, and but there's cannons and muskets. It's also considered the first modern war. We basically already covered that. 
but it's the first modern war. This this double feature is the history of the evolution of warfare. Then we should we should start with the Thirty Years' War. That's the first modern war, and we covered pre-modern here. I don't want to read about the Thirty Years. Don't read about it. I'll tell the I'll tell the fam. There's it's something all... to talk about in the Thirty Years' War. Gustavus Adolphus Wallenstein, the Battle of White Mountain. There's tongue to talk about the Thirty Years' War. Ooh, we had pikes and muskets. The end. No, then the Swedes say we spread our pikes and muskets out more and let us smack you at the Battle of Breitenfeld. Which leads back to the point I literally made seven minutes and about 28 seconds ago when I said, okay, so gunpowder makes it onto the scene, and then it, you see the cycle repeated where you go back into formations, and then you start experimenting with formation. So where's the cavalry that's going to break that stalemate? With the Swedish National Army under Gustavus Adolphus. Anyway, like for part two. <laughs>